who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair and yep. his ice-cold demeanor and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. My name is Sergeant Andrew Scott. Come on, guys, don't do this. If I don't get breakfast, I get real grumpy. I don't think you like me grumpy. And you go in pieces, asshole. Let's kick some ass. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. And today, boy, do we have a uh, do, do we have some fun films to discuss? Um, today we are chatting another triple threat combo: Acceleration, Hard Night Falling, and The Tracker. This trio of films were all shot back-to-back in 2018 and released in 2019 with Giorgio Serafini at the helm of two and rising star Natalie Byrne taking on major roles in two of the films as well. Clearly, the production on all three films was interconnected, so we'll be tackling each of these films in this one conversation. Joining me to discuss these gems is Tom Jolliffe, screenwriter and content contributor for the website flickering myth tom thank you so much for coming back man hi sean yeah it's it's been quite a while so it's good to be back yeah well i was thinking about it the other day um i think the last time i had you on i mean i know it was the minion that we discussed so what was that was that was that 2018 or 2019 it was it was a few years ago though right yeah it kind of makes you think about how much he's done since then Mm mm-hmm yeah, especially as I'm kind of coming near the end of this particular journey, um, you know, uh, with with his particular filmography, um, the number of episodes that I have left are uh, are limited. I guess if we really wanted to, Tom, I could have done one episode on acceleration, one episode on hard night falling, and one episode on the tracker. However, I'm uh, n- not a fan of uh, of punishment, and so, and I, <laughs> I don't think you are either. So uh, I really appreciate yeah. you coming back man no i'm quite happy to come back for a triple whammy i don't mind well and i know i mean gosh i I know that this wasn't the easiest task for you so thank you because normally usually the guests who come on we just look at one particular film and i know when i broached the topic with you i said you know if i remember right if we if we can kind of go back uh back through uh the the history or the genesis of this conversation i know we originally talked about doing acceleration and hard night falling and then I reached out to you again and I said, you know what? Like the tracker was done right around that same time with a lot of the same people, the same producers. I mean, it only makes sense to add this one, add that particular one on as well. You were uh, extremely gracious in, in doing that. I also know that, I mean, you're a screenwriter yourself, so you have quite a bit of inside knowledge on the inner workings of the independent action genre since, I mean, let's be honest, you've written many of these films yourself. So I was hoping 
obviously, like I said, I appreciate you coming back for to discuss three of these films, but I was hoping you might be able to lend a little bit of insight on the inner workings of, uh, of these types of films. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've had a little, a little bit of experience, so yeah, I've got a few insights. <clears throat> it, it might just sort of explain a few things that maybe we, you know, when, as a, as a viewer, maybe that you just look at and you think, well, there's no excuse for that, but you know, maybe I might be able to pull out a few in, um, in favor of the filmmakers. Well, and I don't want to, I mean, we should probably, you know, kind of uh, front load this conversation. I've, I've front loaded um, other conversations with this as well. I know that, you know, the, the movie business is, you know, it's extremely hard work. I know that putting together a movie is um, very time consuming. And uh, even if it does not turn out the way um, I think, fans you know because me I'm, I'm just a dude who's chatting about these movies and watching them but i know that the people who are putting them together i mean getting a film off the ground okay from the initial script phase to filming and then you know finally out there on dvd or on the streaming screens or whatever it may be i mean that right there is is an accomplishment right and that, that right there is a lot of uh, a lot of hard work but having said all of that man um when we we look at the final product with what with what we are given with these three particular films, it's like there's not a heck of a lot really to say, right? Yeah, it's tough sometimes, and I think you know the people putting the money in sometimes they're not necessarily creatively driven; they're more financially driven. So, you know, if it, if it turns out like well, for some of these films that they're not that concerned. Um, and you see, you kind of see that mentality with, I guess, like the Emmett Furler films and things like that, where it's just like this constant mechanism of churning things out. Exactly. Yeah. Those particular films, they almost feel like an assembly line. You know what I mean? Like they yeah. are just, they are just made on an assembly line and okay, this, this particular project, this particular product production needs to finish shooting by Friday because on Sunday we are using the same exact set for our next piece of crap. I mean, you know what I mean? And so, and I'd hate yeah. to think that, that these particular films were kind of going along with the same MO, if you will. But I mean, it, I don't know, man. It, it, it seems the, these films are all very uh, similar in, in a lot of respects. Yeah, they are really. It's difficult because the way streaming has worked out is it's turned a lot of things into, you know, people call it all content now. And it almost, it almost belittles the whole kind of the, the art, artistic side of filmmaking just to call things content. And this go, you know, it goes right up to sort of Disney level and things like that. But you know, at this level, you know, you want a piece of content to put out on streaming. The kind of returns you can get on streaming are a lot less than what it was ten, twenty years ago on DVD. Uh, you know, even then, a lot, lot less than it was on VHS. So it's difficult. You're making these things. You've got to make them cheap um, to make a sort of tidy return on it. And it's all, you know, with the action genre in particular, you have to have kind of name talent on board. So, you know, for a lot of these films, you, if you get sort of a cast together like you've got in Acceleration, for example, you're probably paying 80% of your budget out for the, the cast alone, which doesn't leave a lot left to, you know, to put on screen. 
Oh, we, we said that 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 exact same point when uh, we were discussing the best man, which is another, um, which is one of uh, yeah. Mr. Lundgren's more recent efforts. But yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, it becomes it really does become simple mathematics at a certain point, okay? Because if if your budget it only um, allows for two to three million. Okay, and then your stars. Okay, you're you're bringing on this your name cast or whatever. Well, their salaries and all of their demands and everything that they um, require to star in your production. Well, that takes up eighty percent of your budget. Well, then you're really not left with much, and you still have to figure out sets. You still have to figure out. cameras i mean and it's the little things that i don't think you know the regular uh (laughs) the regular schlubs like me really realize but yeah you also have to figure out okay catering and hotels and airbnbs for your various cast members and everything like that you know i mean so it's like if you're if your stars are getting you know pretty much all of the budget then you really don't have much to work with at a certain point exactly i mean i'm producing a film right now myself and just the the, ma- the amount of costs that keep escalating, and they're, they're always from unexpected places. I mean, we've got a sequence that's going to be 20 seconds on screen, and we need a police presence there, but then the police insist on having two people there instead of one, which means it's double the price. And it's, you know, it's like another thing that you're adding on unexpectedly to the budget. And again, you know, with our film, a big chunk has gone towards our kind of, our kind of name talent in it. So... It's it's really difficult, um, and again, time you know the luxury of time to shoot something in. Like they used to call it really short time periods to shoot films in sort of thirty days, like you know Dolph was doing like twenty five years ago. Um, obviously, nowadays it's half that, sometimes even less. So yeah, yeah, time cost you know time costs money, but there's not really a lot of money to give you that time. Oh, and you can tell. You can tell. I mean, if yeah. you look at a film like uh, like Hard Night Falling, I'd be willing to bet with Hard Night Falling, he had maybe five days on. Acceleration, I'd be willing to bet, was probably even less than that. And then the tracker, I don't know, man. The tracker had to be about maybe 10 days. I, I mean, because I remember when all these films came out, um, and I should probably say, if you go back through the archives of, uh, of this particular show, yeah, when the tracker was uh, was approaching release, um, I had the pleasure of speaking with Giorgio Serafini. And then when Acceleration was approaching release, um, I had the pleasure of speaking with the star and the producer, Natalie Byrne, and then one of the directors, Daniel Zarilli. And I remember when I spoke with them, I mean, they were all... They were all really proud. I mean, obviously these these final products are their babies, right? They're 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 yeah. these are the projects that they worked on for, you know, well the stars only worked on for a few days, but I mean they they spent time, you know, <laughs> um in the editing room and whatnot. So I mean, I think in the end they're about as proud as they can be of the final product. So bless them for for trying to find um diamonds in the rough, but but man, you you watch these films and it's like really like at the end of the day are you i don't know i i, I feel bad like i said i don't i don't want to mitigate the, the their talents and i don't want to completely become a low-rent comedian trashing these films but it's one of those things where it's like were they really happy like at the end of the day when they looked when they were looking at the dailies and the final product was there really and natalie Byrne and um, giorgio serafini well in the case of uh Hard Night Falling, that's Giorgio Bruno, but we're going to talk about that. We can put that in quotes. But, I mean, it's like at the end of the day, were they were they happy with the final product or were they more happy with the 
financial returns that they were getting from like foreign sales. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes it can be difficult to kind of, you can't really be too blunt about your own films, really, even if there's certain things that you don't particularly like, or you weren't happy with how things turned out. You sort of have to kind of, I guess you've got to be careful what you say, you know, to maintain relationships, but also, you know, at the same time, you want to promote the film and, you know, give a good account of it and at least put on the impression that you were pleased with it. But, you know, I know that from a lot of filmmakers, they get frustrated with certain things. Again, when it comes to the people sort of investing the money into it, they don't, they're not that bothered as long as they get a product to put out that they know that they can sell, you know, internationally and make a lot of money in the U S it's, yeah, it's just difficult. I think, you know, for something like, if you look at acceleration, say that's, you know, that's been made, put out in the kind of time scales they have, it's almost a miracle. Um, and, you know, for every sort of film that gets put out, you know, there might've been four or five other scripts that kind of went through the whole process of looking for investors, looking for funding, things falling through at the last minute. I mean, we've seen it over the years, all these, fin- you know, unfinished projects or, you know, cancelled projects that Dolph's been attached to. So, you know, we know how the business works out from that point of view. There's been a lot of films that kind of nearly happened but didn't quite. And I've I've had a few myself. But, yeah, so every every kind of film is almost a miracle that it's put out there. But sometimes it's it's almost like you're just pumping it out the best you can under the circumstances. And, again, you know, a lot of these, they, you know, there won't often be a chance for directors or producers to have the final cut or, you know, have a real say in how the film is promoted or put out. Well, and I mean, yeah, I mean, everything you said is, is exactly correct. I mean, and the other thing too is, I mean, and I've come back to this on previous episodes, but I'll just reiterate it again. I mean, when you look at a presence like Dolph Lundgren, I mean, you know, he is a, I mean, he is such a formidable force in front of the camera. And I guess you could say behind the camera as well, obviously, but you look at these films and it's like, man, like th- these were really the best opportunities that were coming his way. Huh? I mean, you know, and, and, and it's really, yeah. it's really unfortunate. It's really kind of sad. Cause you look at some of the other projects and it's not saying like, I mean, if you look at the things that Mel Gibson is doing nowadays, it's like, man, like, okay. Mel Gibson is an actor who obviously deserves better as well. You know what I mean? But it's like, at least in my opinion, of course, I know some would, would disagree with that. But it's like, wow, like, that's really, I mean, c- considering his talent and considering what he can what he can bring and what we've seen him do, okay, back in 2018 and 2019, these were really the best projects that came his way, huh? Okay, you know? <laughs> well, I think it, it might be a case of they were maybe the most financially... Um, enticing projects you know I, I bet Dolph must get loads and loads of offers there might be something that's a little bit different a bit kind of quirkier out there I mean if you take something like small apartments for example um, he's working with quite a famous sort of art house director from Sweden um, he's done sort of quirky films you know it's a bit interesting a bit different to what he normally does but you know financially he's going to be making a lot less than he would doing something like the tracker, and even uh, you know, I would probably imagine that what he's earning on stuff like the tracker and acceleration and things like that are probably more more than what he would earn on the Expendables Four or Aquaman Two. So it's it's difficult. Maybe you're turning down the 
the little indie quirky art house film to do a kind of action project because you're getting paid three or four times as much. No, it's a great way of looking at it. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the end, um, and I want to, and I'm going to save it for the end if that's okay. But um, I, I, cause I know that you've um, worked on quite a few different projects. Um, I know that you actually have a few that are in the pipeline at the moment. We'll save that for the end. Cause I really, I'm really curious about some of those, but if we look at these three particular films, I mean, it's kind of funny, granted, we are going to be discussing three films, but it should be a relatively short conversation. I remember before <laughs> we got recording, you made the comment, um, Oh yeah, this is going to be a breeze. Hard night falling. Don't bother. Acceleration. Don't bother. The tracker. Nope. Don't bother with that one either. So, um, so, um, but you know, I'll, I'll let you pick. Okay. I know that these are, uh, these are real gems. Okay. Uh, for, to discuss, but I'll let you pick, um, which one shall we, uh, chat about first? Do you want to do hard night falling, the tracker or acceleration? Oh, shall we do acceleration? We'll do acceleration. Okay, great. Okay. <laughs> Quite a few things to say about this one. Okay. In this film, Natalie Byrne takes the lead as Rona, a tough enforcer who does jobs for various mob organizations. But when her son is kidnapped by her employer, Vladek, played by Dolph Lundgren, her orders are clear. Take out Vladek's competition over the course of a single night or risk never seeing her son again. So tell me, how's that reimbursement program coming along? Good? I'm working on it. In this business, there is no room for mistakes. In your wrong term, and innocent people can pay the price. These streets and five tasks stand between me and seeing my son again. Do the job, and you get your son back. Tick tock. Dominic, Dominic, Dominic. How you doing, buddy? We're gonna play a game. So you and I, we're gonna go a little bang bang. Get out of here, man. There's nothing here for you. <clears throat> Word has it you're on a quest. I'd rather not be. Hey. Your kid ain't here. You know, quests can be life-changing. This could be life-ending. I need you to do me one favor. Anything. Anything. Don't beg. How do I know you haven't already killed You don't. This this particular film is interesting. I mean, it's very clear that this is Natalie Byrne's film. Natalie Byrne, who is a uh, um, rising star in the uh, in the genre. I mean, by the when Acceleration had come around, it's not like she was really a rookie in the business. She had quite a few films under her belt. But with this particular film, yeah, not only is she the main star, she was also the executive producer on this one. I mean. Yeah, she's she's the main character. She's in virtually every scene. This is this is her movie. This is kind of like her opportunity to uh, 
to show um, audiences and producers that, hey, not only I can can I lead a film, but I can also um, I know the right people to kind of assemble a film and get it together. I will say after watching this, I don't know. I still don't know if really she's the best lead. I don't know if this film is really the best display of her acting talents. It's certainly a good display of her physicality, I will say. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I'd agree, yeah. I mean, I, I like Natalie Byrne. I think she's got a lot of potential. I would say that she's got one out at the moment called um, Till Death or Until Death, which I think, you know, it's been getting reasonably solid reviews and she's been getting quite good reviews from it. So I think that that would probably be more of a, a good a good display of her talents, I think. But yeah, I think this one, in terms of, you know, putting something together, it's a good way to do it if you want to launch yourself where you, you take control really and then make the, the, the project happen. But I think, you know, it's because of the tight constraints. I, don't, I think this had like, three weeks at the most i would have thought to to shoot oh and you can you can tell i mean danny trejo was in who's in this film one scene he was clearly on set for a day um rampage jackson who's also in the film once again a day i think chuck liddell was on this set maybe about two days i mean it's i mean so when you hear those kind of things it's like okay i guess they're working with the best they possibly can um this particular film was um, directed by two individuals. It was directed by Michael Marino and Daniel Zarilli. Um, I don't know if there was some uh, some things that went on behind the scenes for why there were two directors brought on board. But in any case, um, the best way I think to describe this film, it's interesting. Um, the film is essentially a wannabe Fast and the Furious meets John Wick. Only, <laughs> only the car chase sequences, if you really want to call them that are basically just shots of uh, Natalie Burns, Maserati, zipping around the streets. Okay, it's just her driving this particular car, and the camera is, you know, filming it real fast, you know, from various angles. And I guess that's supposed to be exciting. Um, the, the the other thing about this film that's uh, that's interesting is, I, I guess you could say it's kind of a, a, a perk. It's one of the things that kind of helps the film stand out a bit. Um, but there's this over-reliance on neon, in the film, yeah. which which is somewhat unique and stylized, I, I will say, considering that everything else about this film is cheap. I mean, that, that's my big thing that I'm going to come back to with Acceleration in particular. I think it is, it's clearly the cheapest looking of, of all three films. Yeah, I think in, in terms of like the locations that they used, it was, again, it's sometimes it can be difficult to get, you know, really fancy locations, but it's, um, they're so sort of nondescript and kind of, you know, cheap looking. Um, but, you know, I did quite like the fact that they they did something with all the neons and things like that and the lighting. Yeah, um, the lighting, yeah. Yeah, and the grade. But I think, you know, that at least that showed some, um, some intent to kind of make it, you know, pop visually. Yeah, I think, you know, I think I said in my original review when I reviewed this on Flickery Myth that one thing it does lack is acceleration. Because, <laughs> um, you know, you would expect a lot more car chases and things like that. But obviously, this is where you kind of dig yourself into a hole doing a film like this, where you you probably need an extra week or two to, you know, put together car chases and, you know, a, little, a lot more money as well. So, yeah, it's kind of, it's not really built in the way it should be, really, which is difficult for, the you know, the film and putting it out there. But, you know... 
in terms of like fitting names in a day at a time, it's difficult because the only way you can really do it is it's always going to feel a little bit awkward, like they've been shoehorned in. Um, and I think that's the case here. Um, but you know, that's, that's the way that pretty much everyone is doing it, that you might, you might suddenly hear maybe three or four weeks before shooting or even in less time that, Oh, Danny Trejo is available. Let's quickly write a scene for him, put him in. And then you're kind of like adding bits into your script. Cause I've had to do this before myself, ironically for Danny Trejo. (laughs) So yeah, you're adding things in that, uh, you know, you're adding them into a script that works, you know, going from A to B. So anything you add in from then on is effectively superfluous. Um, unless you do like a major sort of rewrite. But again, if time's short, then you can't really do that. So, yeah, it's tough. I think my one of my biggest issues with this one is that Dolph seems a little bit... His character it seems a bit awkward in, in terms of the film. I think you've got Sean Patrick Flannery, who I quite liked in this. Because he's yeah. kind of he's just kind of letting loose, and I quite like that in a villain. Dolph is this kind of character where you're not really ever sure of his motives. There, he's he's meant to be kind of a bad guy, but because it's Dolph, you know, they have to kind of play up to his heroic side a little bit as well. So morally, he's kind of like on this this tightrope where he keeps flipping one side and then the other, and I think it just it feels a bit awkward. And then you add to the fact that he's only ever sort of seen in one room or, you know, a couple of rooms. And it just, um, it feel, feels a bit like he's a bit needless in the film, but obviously, you know, he's the big name. Well, I mean, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, that was going to be my next point was, uh, yeah, Dolph's character is Vladek. Um, most of his scenes are just of him sitting behind a computer monitor watching all of the action unfold. That's the other thing that's kind of interesting to me, too, is we're expected to believe that, okay, um, Rona, okay, that's Natalie Byrne's character, she has just one night to complete five tasks. And it's like, okay, you know, we've seen films before that take place over the course of a single evening or a day, for that matter. Okay, fine. But it's one of those things where it's like, it's like 2.30, 3 in the morning, and... Apparently, the criminal underworld is wide awake at these hours. I mean, when we see Danny Trejo, he's eating like a, a full-on steak dinner, and it's like at three in the morning. Okay, <laughs> it's, um, yeah. but but yeah, that that that's Dolph's role. I mean, he all of his scenes. I'd say, what would you say Dolph is in this film? Maybe twelve minutes collectively. I mean, if you're going to put all of his scenes together, maybe fifteen. But I'd say about. of those scenes are him just sitting by behind a computer monitor. Okay. Watching, you know, everything unfold, um, how he has camera access to everything that's going on is, uh, uh, questionable, but that's fine. Um, he, he does get an action sequence at the end that involves a shootout. Um, and then he later on gets a fist fight with, with Chuck Liddell. So I guess those are, you know, pretty welcome, but I mean, in the end, if we're if we're talking about the cheapness of this film, the, the the scene that I just went bonkers laughing about was okay. One of Rona's tasks is to blow up a building that uh, belongs to Vladik's competitor, Kane. Okay, so that's Sean Patrick Flannery's character. He plays um the the, the rival Kane. Okay, so Rona is to blow up this building. Only the explosion, and I put explosion in quotes. Okay. Uh, the explosion 
is seen via uh, a computer monitor and then in yeah. Rona's reflection. And so it's, wow, clearly this production did not have the funds to spring for any kind of pyrotechnics or any fake pyrotechnics. It's we see it in a reflection. Okay, that, that, that's, that is what we're working with. And that's one of the, the, the best ways to kind of describe the film. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's it's tough when you you know you've kind of got cut corners and it's like you're always taught sort of in writing you know never to try and take the cheap way out but you know sometimes that's all the choice you have yeah i mean i will say the the fight scenes um mainly on natalie burns behalf are are quite good i mean dolph's fight scene is okay um oddly enough i remember um back in the show um, when I uh, had the pleasure of speaking with Tony Messenger, that's Dolph's go-to stunt double. Um, he was gearing up. So it was funny because right when I had the conversation with him, um, he was getting ready to leave to go practice uh, rehearsals for, um, for for the fight scenes in, the, in this particular film. But um, I think in the end, the, the, the real showcase, if you want to call it that, is on Natalie Byrne's behalf. I mean, you can tell that she is very invested in her, her fight scenes, you know, the few that she gets are, I will say they're, they're, they're quite good considering the, the scope of the film. And I, I use that term uh, uh, loosely, but I mean, I, I will say that that's one of the perks. Yeah. I, I felt the same. Yeah. I think you, you can see maybe in a few of them where maybe one might have had more time than the other, but I think there's some, you know, there's some nice camera work in there and choreography and in terms of you know what she does physically as well it's it's pretty impressive i would have you know if they'd have made this a little bit more i guess sort of atomic blonde and had you know more fist fights and less kind of driving around it might have been you know it might have been a bit more interesting had a bit of you know more pace about it i think but i think you know there's a bit of a lack of urgency in the film and i think a lot of that is where they've spread Dolph quite thin and you've got to keep cutting back to him in a room or kind of in the, the kids' room in the film as well. Um, and then there's quite a forced kind of plot twist as well, but let's not, let's oh. not spoil that. <laughs> yeah, the, we're going to get to the plot yeah. twists because that completely negates everything in the, <laughs> in the film. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you already mentioned the cast. So let's just run down the cast. What, what's, what's interesting about, about the lineup of stars that this film has employed is it really becomes a bunch of who's who's and they all just kind of float into the film and then leave. And then we never see them again. Um, I will say um, we talked about Natalie Burns, um, uh, her fight scenes being a bright spot, but Sean Patrick Flannery, what's interesting about this film is if you go online, you read any review for this film, they all seem to call out um, Sean Patrick Flannery. And I think that's for good reason. I, I never thought that I would say, but um, he's, he's, I don't know. Would you say Sean Patrick Flannery is probably the best thing about this film? He plays the villain Kane. He's yeah. the main villain. Um, um, interestingly, it, it's not a coincidence, but he also carries a cane around for, reasons that are never explained um but you can tell that he's having fun in this role even if he's using a very cheap and cheesy uh, new york gangster accent you can tell i mean he gets these monologues in the film that are clearly inspired by quentin tarantino like like there's no way around it i mean it's it's clearly tarantino inspired but i mean you can you can tell he's having fun and it's it's kind of 
it's kind of interesting the things that he's doing in the film. It's kind of like, huh, I never thought Sean Patrick Flannery would be such a welcome presence of all people in a film. Yeah, absolutely. I think he he was probably the highlight for me as well. I think it was good to see, you know, a villain that kind of where someone's really kind of dialing it up a bit and just making things a bit more interesting because obviously Natalie Byrne in her, the film, it's one of those where, you know, obviously she's got these tasks to complete, but she's going to these kind of nondescript places and not particularly doing a lot in, in these places at times, um, besides the occasional fight or, or whatever. So, you know, he makes something interesting happen on screen, but I think, you know, obviously once he goes off it, everything kind of lowers again and it falls a bit flat. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at some of the other stars, I mean, that, that's that's an excellent segue once again because, okay, so we, we already mentioned it, but Danny Trejo, he shows up in one scene, again, sitting at a table in a, uh, uh, with what I'm assuming like a fancy dinner, again, at 2.33 in the morning. Um, he's also in this room that's uh, uh, overly lit with neon once again, which is interesting, but um, he shows up as another fellow gangster who is on board with Kane being taken out. He's apparently on Vladek's side um, only in that one scene. And then we never see him again. And it's the same thing with, uh, with rampage Jackson. He's in one scene. His scene is basically there to, uh, to show the way for he pretty much points the way for uh, Rona's <laughs> next assignment. Okay. That she's to go yeah. on the casting for me that really scratched my head was Sally Kirkland. Okay, Sally yeah. Kirkland shows up. Now, okay, she, she's gotten up there in age, so God bless her for still working. But her role in this film is literally just a waitress at a coffee shop who serves Rona coffee and then gives Kane a couple slices of pie. So it's kind of like, yeah. like, man, Sally, like you you really wanted to show up for this in, in the role of a waitress? <laughs> like, yeah, well, I mean, she's good friends with... Uh, with Daniel Zarilli, so I'm I'm thinking she probably just said, or he probably asked her as a favor, or she said, oh, "Have you got anything for me?" And yeah, it's it's one of those. I think Daniel's got quite a big contacts book, so you know, in in the case of a lot of these roles, it might be a case of, "Oh, could you just jump on this for half a day, or you know, a few hours?" In Sally Kirkland's case, you know, it does it does add star value, but you know, again, it's it's not entirely necessary all the time. Well, it, it kind of reminded me of that scene in Ed Wood, okay, where um, <laughs> where Ed Wood's wife at the time, uh, I think it was Dolores Fuller, if I'm not mistaken, um, in the scene, uh, she was played by Jessica Sarah Jessica Parker. But um, Ed Wood was like, "Well, here I'm, I'm giving the uh, I'm giving the main role to this one gal, but there's a, there's a one line scene with the file clerk that you can have," and she was like, "What?" Like, like that's the best you have for me is the file clerk, and that's exactly what Sally Kirkland does in this film. Um, yeah, I mean, if we get to the end real quick, I mean, there's a, uh, like you said, a completely ridiculous twist at the end, okay, where it is revealed that, okay, this, so this is spoiler territory, Tom. I hope, hope we're okay going into spoiler territory. Um, completely ridiculous twist. Word is revealed that Vladek is actually the father of Rona's son. Okay, so by providing that particular twist, it conversely it, it really kind of negates any stakes or threat in the first place because you know that Rona knew that 
that Vladek was not going to kill his son. You know what I mean? Like, like Rona had to know that, okay, yeah, he's kidnapped. And I put, once again, that term in quotes, okay, he's kidnapped our son, but he's not going to harm him in any way. So it's kind of like, well, then why is Rona in this urgent, uh, on this urgent quest to complete the five tasks if they're going to throw in that particular twist? Yeah, I think it's just one of these awkward things. I think sometimes, you know, if Dolph's going to play an outright villain, he he tends to do it when he's opposite someone of kind of note, I guess. Um, you know, it's, if he's opposite a Van Damme or an Adkins or something like that, or, you know, for a particular director, I think what it, you know, on, in other roles that he's got to still have a, some sort of sense of morality to it. Um, I don't know whether this is from him in particular, where maybe he had notes on his character or where it's just that the distributors felt that he has to have some kind of redeeming factor. Um, I remember watching a film with uh, Steven Seagal, probably his last one, actually. Um, and you always have to have a very, very distinct kind of moral compass with Seagal. He's playing the villain in the film. And the whole film kind of builds up to a last kind of conflict with this hero chasing him. But because it's Steven Seagal, he kind of has to flip things around and then he gets the moral superiority and he beats the, the hero and sort of kills the hero with the film. Really kind of awkward. Um, and it kind of just completely demolishes the film right at the end because... You're trying to play up to the heroic image that Seagal thinks he's got. Um, I don't think it's that case with Dolph, really, because he's not got that same kind of ego. But, yeah, it might be that distributors felt that, you know, you can't have Dolph playing like a child kidnapper and, you know, this, (laughs) (laughs) this kind of irredeemable villain. So they've kind of tacked this awkward thing on. And I know, you know, I've had it myself with distributors getting ideas you know, I've been halfway through writing a film and then, you know, a distributor's got the idea to have a film set in Amateurville so they can put Amateurville in the title um, as clickbait. So, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, okay, we'll just, we'll do that then. Um, but it, it's really awkward. You can kind of see it doesn't quite work. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and it, especially when, when uh, so Dolph's character and Natalie Byrne decide to embrace for one last kiss. So in the <laughs> so after that twist has been revealed, okay, they decide, all right, let's go into Kane's uh, lair, his hideout, and have one final shootout to kind of end this entire thing. And then Natalie Byrne looks at him and she goes, can we just have one more kiss in case we don't make it out alive? And he says, sure. And they embrace. And it's kind of like, okay, this is the dude that kidnapped your son. And it, it just, it, it was really... <laughs> I was at that point, I was yeah. uh, just kind of rolling my eyes. It was like, really? So, um, yeah, yeah. Anything b- before we wrap that one up? Because um, I don't think there's anything more to really say about it. Um, anything else that you want to say about acceleration before we move on to the next gem in this unholy trio? Yeah. I mean, I do, you know, I. I didn't mind this one. I think there there are redeeming things in it. I think, you know, as a proof of concept for Natalie Burns talents, it's it's probably it's probably worth seeing if you if you've seen her sort of since then and been, you know, a bit of a fan, it's probably a good one to kind of maybe look back at. But yeah, I think, you know, 
she's good and then Sean Patrick Flannery is a highlight it's just it's not helped by the concept and a few sort of clumsy choices really well, while we're on the subject of Natalie Byrne, um, I think it, it makes sense to uh, to go to Hard Night Fallen next. Is that okay with you? Yeah, that works for me. All right, all right. So let's let's go to this one. Um, this one might be probably the quickest conversation of the three. Uh, <laughs> in this, uh, okay, in this completely boring and mundane diehard ripoff, Dolph plays Michael Anderson an Interpol agent who's not just on assignment in Italy, but also vacationing with his wife and daughter. Yet while at a fancy company dinner party, all 50 guests are taken hostage by a gang of thieves intent on stealing 150 million in gold. Fortunately for Michael Anderson, his team of Interpol agents are still in Italy, lending him the help and not just fending off these heavily armed thieves, but also rescuing his wife and daughter. If I can have a moment of your attention. A celebration. I missed you so much. Yeah, I missed you too. Turn deadly. Let's go. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a hostage situation. Explosives all around. Sniper on the roof. You have to get the team to the villa, ASAP. What about your daughter? You're gonna have to get your safe first. I love you. 150 million reasons to kill. Apparently, Rossini has a treasure buried underneath the villa. Lock the perimeter. One problem in their way. <laughs> Who is he? You're in no position to bargain, no matter how much you love your daughter. Dorf Lundgren. You're running out of time. Shouldn't underestimate this case. I'm a soldier, and it suits me to see him die. We enjoy killing. Yeah. Hard night falling. Tom, I'm gonna I'm gonna need your help with this one. Um, I really don't know what it was I just watched with this particular film. I was hoping, <laughs> I was hoping you might uh, help me make sense of it. This, my my God, th- th- this film is completely inert. What what, what, yeah. what do you think? What what are your thoughts regarding Hard Night Falling? I mean. It's it's the weakest of the three for me. I think also in terms of, you know, Dolph has done quite a few kind of die-hardish sort of films over the years, and for me, it's by far the weakest. I've not seen Best Man yet, so I, I couldn't say how that compares. But yeah, yeah this not, one. Is, um... <laughs> I'm sorry, but yeah, it's you, you don't have to you don't have to rush out and uh, rent that one anytime soon. So. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> It's difficult because obviously Dolph is kind of like the main lead in it. Um, But, you know, again, his time I would imagine was limited. So when you've got that kind of diehard thing where, you know, let's go back to the original diehard where, you know, you're effectively following Bruce Willis through most of the film. Um, When you're not following him, you're kind of like with the villains and his wife. So his wife is kind of like one of the points of view as well because she's always there with the villains. Um, you don't really get that kind of sense here. There's so many like long stretches where Dolph kind of disappears or where they just kind of fill in the gap with him walking around these sort of dark tunnels or, you know, out, just outside the, the building. Um, there's just like a real lack of action and tension. And it's, you know, they've 
gone for a, like a diehard kind of thing, but they've got this one location, but you know, they've not really known what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so real quick, we should probably say, um, so yeah, Natalie Byrne is in this film as well. Um, when I spoke with Natalie Byrne, it sounds like, so she was hired to do this particular film with Lundgren. And then when acceleration came around, um, that's how she had kind of built a relationship with him. So she was kind of able to kind of get him on board with acceleration because they filmed this particular film first, but uh, yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and so she's in the film. She plays um, Dolph. Um, she's a member of the Interpol team. She's one of his partners. Okay. But, I mean, y- you said a lot there. I mean, the, the whole film, t- to me, okay, this is how I felt, but the whole film just feels like it was a complete tax write-off. I mean, that that's that's really what it was. Okay. I think, um, so supposedly, Giorgio Bruno um, is the credited director of this one, though rumor has it, um, Giorgio Serafini, who Dolph has worked with a number of times. Um, Serafini kind of helped ghost direct this one as well. But it almost feels, and I'd be willing to bet this is what happened, I honestly think that um, everybody on crew had access to this like Italian villa set. They were in Italy, okay? Um, they had access to this uh, giant hotel and they just decided, you know what? Let's let's squeeze out a movie real quick, quick with this. And almost almost yeah. feels like maybe the script was being written on the fly. Only oddly enough, so much of the film takes place more in the woods than it does in the actual Italian villa. I mean, you would think if you're filming in Italy, then you're going to get some amazing Italian shots yeah. and and everything like that. And they're going to do something, you know, pretty cool with that one set of this giant hotel. Only we get none of that. It's pretty much Dolph running through the woods in a film where his family is taken hostage inside a hotel building. (laughs) Yeah. It's just really, really awkward. I think, I guess part of that might have been location fees, might have been a consideration there. But I think, you know, you're right in terms of this feels like an afterthought almost. I mean, not that, um, spoiler alert, that the track is going to be, you know, massively better, but that felt more like a kind of considered film. Whereas this may be like Albert Pune used to do this where he'd be shooting kind of like a film in some, wherever it was. And he'd have the crew there. He'd have maybe some locations available nearby and he'd kind of film a second film kind of consecutively or just after. Um, Uva Uva Boll did the exact same thing. Sorry, but you know Uva Boll. You know, say what you will about him. I know that he does not have his fans, but he he's done the exact same thing. Where he's like, oh, we we have this set. This set is available for another um, another week. You know what? Let's let's pump out another film real quick. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's a good way that you know you've got a crew. I don't know how much of the crew kind of crossed over, but you know you can kind of pump out two products instead of one so yeah i guess there's uh there's some some sense there um it probably makes more financial sense to do that that way two products rather than putting extra time into the first one and making it better from a fan's point of view we would probably prefer that they used those 10 days and added it to the tracker but you know from a distributor's point of view they probably thought oh, two films instead of one well, I mean, and the film is, I mean, I, I already said it already, but I mean, the film, it, it's just inert. I mean, there are, 
there are so many scenes that just go on and on and on. I mean, and and to an extent, the, the tracker does does something actually pretty similar. But there are scenes where people are just walking to answer phone calls or walking to like open a door. You know what I mean? Like, the, and it's yeah. like, like the, the like the camera really decided. It almost feels like they're purposely just you know, squeezing it in to kind of pat out to hit a 90 minute runtime, which as is the film really is, is barely able to do. But there's one scene that, I mean, you literally afterwards are like scratching your head, like, wow, they, they decided to put that in. But there is one scene where um, it's uh, Natalie Byrne and her partner pull up in their car, waiting for Dolph's instructions and orders. Okay. And I don't know if you know the scene, but she gets out of the car she puts her hands on her hips. She stands there. She's waiting, you know, wait, waiting, I guess, for, for Dolph's orders or for him to, to, to meet them. And the scene then just cuts to the next scene. And so it's just really puzzling. It's like, <laughs> wow, like, like the, the, yeah. this scene was chosen with, with no dialogue or anything like that. You know what I mean? It's odd. I think, you know, it could be just a case of padding out the time to hit like a 90-minute mark or close enough to it. Yeah, I mean, and if you we, if we look at the um, the leader of thieves, okay, so yeah, that's why they've stormed this this hotel, okay. Uh, Hal, what's his name? Hal Yamanochi, um, who I remember yeah. showing up. And what's interesting is uh, my really only the only film I saw him in was he was in uh, the Wolverine, and so he played this just old decrepit old man um, who shows up at the end of the Wolverine uh, movie. Um, but he is the leader of the thieves. I'm I'm just going to say it, Tom, this guy, he's probably the worst choice for an intimidating foil against someone like Dolph Lundgren. Okay. He is just, (laughs) it's just this, this little guy. He looks way too old. Um, He does get a hilarious scene where he has Dolph's wife um, hostage in a car and he literally growls at her. Do you remember the scene? He literally like growls at her when he realizes that his plan isn't, isn't going his way. I mean, it's just, you know, again, kind of like what we said with acceleration. God bless some of these actors for trying, but man, it's very clear that he was chosen because he was available. Again, I think that's the thing we're going to keep coming back to with this film is they had the set available for an extra week. They decided, you know what? Let's make another movie. And hey, who do we have available? Who is nearby Italy at the moment that wouldn't mind coming by for two weeks so that we can? Um, so we can shoot this thing and get it in the can. Yeah, I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. I did expect a lot more from him. And again, I, my probably my only experience of seeing him before was in The Wolverine as well. Um, but I do remember him, him being quite good in that. So I did expect a bit more of a kind of an imposing villain or just to do something a bit more interesting with the character. Because, I, you know, I guess you don't necessarily have to be physically intimidated intimidating but you know you can do something like alan rickman does where you bring something different to it or you bring a different kind of um intimidation to it but you know it didn't seem like he really brought anything to the character well i mean Dolph does get i mean we should probably say that uh, Dolph does get a fist fight with one of the uh with one of the henchmen with one of the thieves um you know really big dude okay it takes place in a basement but that fight scene really never snaps alive. I mean, the thing is, and it's one of the things I'm going to be saying about the tracker as well. I mean, but the film is just so dimly lit. 
I mean, like I said earlier, that you know, a lot, a lot of it takes place in the woods, and then there's quite a few scenes that are in like this basement. So the coloring of the film is not particularly uh, uh, pretty or, or favorable at all. I mean, because like I said, it's just so dark. And I mean, and even that fight scene. I mean, man, it, it's interesting because I mean. Delph is, of course, at an age now where maybe he cannot do what he once did. And so, but but then again, if you have a director who's on set who knows how to film it, then they can they can still make it look good, okay? But yeah. in that particular fight scene, I mean, you can tell that um, that it, it's being directed by by someone who's just, who's, who's more interested in getting the, the, the scene completed by the end of the day rather than putting together a really good fight scene. At least that that's how it, it appears to me. Because in the scenes, I mean, yeah, Dolph, he's, you can tell that he's, like, kind of reeling back to take his punches. You know what I mean? It, it feels very, very um, rehearsed. Like it, like it was literally, it was rehearsed maybe an hour beforehand, and then the camera started rolling. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you know, from the, I would say, if you look at Acceleration, for example, they probably had a better stunt team um and again maybe that's a, it's a cost consideration with hard night falling as well that maybe they didn't you know hire in quite as good a stunt team or a team that will choreograph anything more intricate i think obviously in hindsight we might look at dolph and i mean it's age as well but you know we know we're kind of in retrospect now that he had ankle problems probably around about that time um before his operation um, and obviously we also know in retrospect that around about that time he would have been struggling with cancer as well. So right, yeah, there the, the were kind of mitigating circumstances where that would slow him down, obviously in terms of fighting, but yeah, in terms of the choreography and how they've shot it, it's kind of like rushed, isn't it? So it's just do whatever you can. And, you know, there's a few kind of Dolph go-tos that, they can wheel out, which is like, you know, block and then a right cross and a right cross, maybe <laughs> a new cut. Um, you know, there's a few kind of easy go-to staples that have been kind of recycled quite a lot. Yeah, it just, there's, there's nothing really that intricate or exciting in the fights. And even then, you know, there's, they're too few and far between as well. There is an explosion at the end, we should probably say, right? There, there is a great yeah. big explosion, but it's also a hilarious uh, CGI explosion. So going back to acceleration, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, what's better a giant CGI explosion or an explosion that is shown uh, in, in a character's reflection. I don't know. I, I guess yeah. I'd probably say a CGI one, I guess if, if I really had to pay. Yeah. <laughs> one over the other. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I would have personally just, if you can't do a full on explosion, I'd have just blown out some debris with a, with an air cannon or something. Um, but you know, uh, well, is there, the, I mean, yeah. I, I don't, I mean, gosh, I mean, I, I feel like we really just kind of glossed over this film, but I mean, there's, there's, there's not much for it. I mean, and, and that's kind of the point that I've come to with, with a lot of these particular films is it's kind of like, look, I don't think the actors were really that invested in the particular film. So I don't see why I, as a viewer really need to spend a whole lot of time on it either. You know what I mean? It's kind of one of those yeah. things. But um, b- before we go to our last one, is there anything else that you uh, that you want to uh, add or say about Hard Night Falling? Yeah, I think 
just as you say, there's no, nothing really that stands out as being too memorable besides it, you know, even that being quite a, a short run time, it's quite a slog to get through. Um, even in some of like the middle range kind of diehard films that Dolph's done, if you look at something like Detention, that still had these little moments in there where you thought, oh, okay, that's quite a quirky idea. Like, uh, you know, a chase inside a school hall with a guy on his kind of mobility scooter. Uh, they run a car through the, the hallway and crash through like a reception desk. Um, you're talking way bigger budget, obviously, <laughs> even looking back retrospectively when, you know, you and I as fans would have looked at that film back in 20 years ago and thought, Oh God, this is cheap. Um, you know, 15 years later and he's making hard night falling and it's like, Oh boy. So it's, it's difficult. There's not really any kind of moment where it, it stands out as being memorable or having a bit of a, of imagination. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do have a fun fact for you. I think before we, before we started talking, I said, dude, I, I found a, a really, a, a really interesting deep cut for you. So, okay. So real quick, here you go, Tom. I don't know if you knew this or not, but uh, in this particular film, Dolph, uh, his name, like I said, is Michael Anderson. This is uh, actually the second time that Dolph has played a character um, with the name Michael Anderson. Do, do you know the first time by chance? I do. I watched it the other day. Cover up. Cover up. Yeah. Only in that yeah. film, it, it's Mike Anderson. But yeah. I just find it hilarious that uh, that he's once again played a uh, played a <laughs> character with the same name. I guarantee you, though. I guarantee you that it's really only nerds like you and I yeah. that have made that connection. I'd be willing to bet that even Dolph doesn't remember. I doubt he has any idea or the writer. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, let's go to our last one, our last of this three. Um, and it's interesting. I think we're actually ending on um, on about as positive a note as we can, I think, um, which is kind of ironic saying that. But, um, okay, so we're going to look next at the tracker. Um, in this film, Dolph stars as Aiden Hawkinson, a traveler who returns to the same Italian town 15 years after his wife and daughter were kidnapped and killed. When he gets wind that his case may be reopened, he teams up with a young Italian detective to uncover a conspiracy that goes even deeper than either man imagined. The hunter kills its prey, the tracker understands it. Hakasan, we have your wife and daughter. Half a million if you want to see them alive. Tonight at 11. No police. Found them this morning. Where are they? I'm sorry. Detective Laterza, I have information regarding your family. No one could be trusted in this village. Corruption is everywhere. It's kind of hard to live your life without knowing who killed your loved ones. We're about to kidnap To finance this drug smuggling, he alone covers half of Italy. Revenge? Justice, maybe. Uh. 
Rated R. All right, Tom, I'll, I'll go to you once again for uh, first takes. Uh, what, what are your immediate impressions and thoughts regarding the tracker? I think I quite like these kind of thriller in usually I do anyway. I quite like these sort of Euro thrillers. And I think this is the one of the three that probably had in terms of the concept, the most potential, um, you know, you've got a film set in Italy, you've got these great locations, um, and it could have been something really kind of interesting if they'd have if they'd have managed to find a way to use Dolph Dolph better and implement some of the supporting characters because I think there's this awkward thing of where you know they're trying to uncover these kind of these conspiracies and you know all this stuff and there's they're they're kind of awkwardly finding things and Dolph is quite passive throughout the film. I mean, he's meant to be yeah. the tracker, isn't he? Or, you know, there's this big intro where he's, he's remembering his father telling him about being a tracker and not a hunter. Um, Dolph doesn't really do a lot of tracking in this and he doesn't really do any hunting either. So yeah, it's, it's difficult. I think the, you know, the concept was there occasionally there's some nice locations that they use. Um, but I do think one thing I will say about Dolph is there's a, a few sequences in it where he seems to be invested in, in that scene and invested in the character. Um, he's got a couple of emotional scenes in it when I think he's, you know, he's definitely more interested in this than he was in Hard Night Falling, for example. Yeah, well, we should probably say, actually, yeah, that my understanding is that, um, okay, yeah, so Dolph was on set in Italy Okay, doing uh, doing both of these films, um, and again, yeah, it's my understanding that the producers he kind of made a, a deal of sorts. Um, so the reason why he did these particular films was with these Italian producers. Um, it was pretty much a "you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours" type um, type deal, where they were going to finance a pet project of his that he was going to direct called Malevolence. Are you familiar with this one? I do. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, and so so that that's pretty much the the big reason, the big impetus for why um, for why Dolph did both of these films, okay, both Hard Night Falling and uh, uh, this one, The Tracker, because yeah, they both take place in Italy. He was working with these Italian producers. Unfortunately, it's it's one of those things. It's kind of the dirty. I mean, there's multiple dirty sides to Hollywood. I think we should say, but it's one of those uh, one of the many unfortunate things. Is it's like man, they got what they wanted out of this out of this deal but then things fell through and Dolph did not yeah. get what he wanted out of the deal and so he did not get to make malevolent malevolent excuse me which is um a very unfortunate obviously um i remember when this one was in production and i heard that it was once again going to be directed by uh Giorgio Serafini now I will say again, um, out of all the interviews um, that uh, of all the people I've had the pleasure of speaking with, Giorgio Serafini was just so gracious with this time. He was just an extremely nice, nice guy. However, if you look at the previous films that he had done with with uh, uh, Dolph, I, I kind of call them the the Serafini trifecta. Okay, um, yeah. Though those films are not good, okay. That's just that's just saying it. So I remember when I heard that he was going to be doing this one as well. I, I was like, oh, God, okay, here we go again. Um, I will say that this is the best of, of the four films, well, five if you want to call Hard Night Fallen, but of all the films that that Serafini and Lundgren have worked on together, I will say 
that this is the best. How do I say this? This is the best one of the films. I, I mean, and I go back on that because I'm going to be, I mean, the, the film is extremely boring. The film is colored very, very drab and bland. I mean, there, there's just really no colors to it. However, in the end, it does not look as cheap as those previous films. Okay. I mean, I feel like I will say about the tracker in the end is it does, even though it is boring and even though there are long stretches where like nothing is happening, it does resemble an actual movie for a change. And it is very clear. I will say with this one, okay, regardless of how people feel about it or whatever, it is very clear that Giorgio Serafini was going for a 1970s European feel with this particular film. And I will say yeah. he, he, he succeeded. Okay. hundred percent on that level. Okay. I mean, this film, it does look and feel like one of those seventies Euro films. Um, and so it works on that level. Um, I think the film, it does a much better job than hard night falling of working with the Italian locale as well. I mean, you can tell, I mean, this, this film is shot and set in Italy and it, it does a, a great job with that as well. So those are some of the perks I'm going to be saying about the film. I think those are probably the only perks I'm going to say about it, but, but I will say <laughs> it, it works there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same. I think, you know, in terms of what it aspired to be, it's, it's more my cup of tea really than just, you know, maybe just pumping out another diehard film. Um, Cause yeah, I'm, I am a fan of those kind of Euro thrillers, but I think, you've got to have a more kind of engaging plot line and there's got to be more logic to how people kind of uncover things. It's just this awkward thing of balancing Dolph. And then you've got the, the, the young Italian cop, I believe, I can't remember his name, but I believe he's like quite a famous radio personality. Um, oh, Marco Mazzoli is the actor's yeah, name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, he did quite a good job in terms of his performance, but, I don't think his character was necessarily that useful at times. I think he gets a lot of screen time, but he doesn't really do much to kind of uncover anything um, for a long stretches of the film. So he's not really this kind of useful addition that helps Dolph kind of, you know, get from A to B. But yeah, like I say, I think, you know, Dolph is just too passive in the film. It's almost all these things kind of happen around him. And then at the end, they sort of happen upon what they're looking for. And it kind of, obviously with budget and everything, the, the action is lacking as well. So you don't really have that big kind of payoff at the end. Right, right. Well, and that's that's some of the, the main, I mean, everything that you said is are some of the big main problems that I have with this film is, okay, the, the, the film, it's just, it's so boring. I mean, I literally, there. I, I had to watch this, Tom, over the course of a couple days because I was kind of dozing out i mean you know what i mean and, and in a film i mean that, that's the thing Dolph has done that particular this particular character archetype numerous times okay the grieving father who's out for revenge okay um yeah and, and he's done that i mean he's done that multiple times we know that he can do it well and so i remember when this was in production and i saw the trailer i was like okay Dolph is going back to a well of that uh, playing a character that he's done before okay well at least we know that he can do that but the film is just my God, it, it's just so boring. And like I said earlier, I mean, it, the even the coloring of it. I mean, where acceleration at least had some neon to kind of to kind of make you snap to attention. You know what I mean? This film, yeah. I mean, it, the the colors of it are just. I mean, even Dolph's outfit is just this 
dark green, you know what I mean? And it's just, it's just really, really slow moving. You said it already, okay? You know, you think for a film called The Tracker, okay? Especially where at the very beginning, Dolph, um, he makes a uh, he makes a comment, or excuse me, he does the narrating at the beginning, excuse me, where he says, you know, um, the hunter kills its prey, but a tracker understands it. So you're thinking, okay. Dolph is going to be on the tail of uh, those who kidnapped his wife and kids. Only he doesn't do any tracking. It's one of those things where <laughs> in the first in the first 10 minutes of the film, it's established, like I said, that he is the tracker. But then we see a scene where he goes to the police and they're saying, sorry, your, your wife and uh, family were, were killed, were kidnapped and then killed. There's nothing we can do. And Dolph is just like, OK. And I guess he goes back to the States. He goes back home. And you're thinking, like, wow, wouldn't he be, like, knocking on doors or going in the backroom alleys or something like that to figure that out? And then the only reason his character returns to Italy is because the detective calls him up and tells him, hey, we have some more leads on your case. Come on out. And so he comes back out, but then he doesn't do any tracking. So it's like, why set that up, that he is this badass tracker and hunter, if they're not going to do literally anything with that at all? Yeah, it's just another strange one, isn't it? That, you know, even if you have a film with these kind of tight budgets, you know, I look at something like The Defender where, you know, that would have been a tight budget, although kind of gargantuan maybe in, compared to this one. But, you know, they have this sense of pace where once they're in, they're being kind of stormed by the terrorists outside. I guess this is more of a relevant comparison to Hard Night Falling, but for this as well, there's... There's an urgency there and there's a sense of pace where this one just has no urgency. Same with, um, you know, acceleration. There's no real acceleration in it. And in this, there's no tracking. So it's difficult. I think, you know, you need to pay. These things need to be paced better, have a bit more urgency. I think, you know, the whole 15 year gap is really awkward to begin with it should have just had a kind of taken angle where it kind of, you've got this immediacy and he launches straight into kind of like a revenge mission. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, and again, they, they don't really care if things are original or not, or so, you know, why not just do another straight up revenge film? Well, I mean, yeah, like, like you said, I mean, he's okay. We're establishing that Dolph's character. He's an expert in the field. He knows what he's doing. See, I, I guess w- what we're supposed to understand here, Tom, is that, <laughs> is that trackers, they, they understand their prey and they follow it. So when they do finally kill it, okay, they, because they've been tracking it, I guess, for so long that, um, that, that gives him the upper hand, I guess. Okay, fine. And so that's exactly what Dolph does throughout this entire film, is he is just following those who supposedly know about his family, I guess. But it's really, I mean, in the end, it's really just various shots of him walking around in a wet slicker jacket with a sniper rifle, and he's hiding out in the woods. Okay, and that's pretty much it. He lets, I mean, you when you and I... um before we started rolling, before we started recording, um, you said what's interesting is, okay, yeah, he's the tracker. It's his family that were kidnapped and murdered, yet he's going to le- let this young uh, uh, this young detective do all the donkey work in, in <laughs> uncovering the mystery. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And so, yeah, in the end, Dolph's character and his story almost 
become an afterthought because he's really in the end he's really not the main character the main character of this film is uh is yeah you already said it the art um the actor's name is marco mazzoli um he's playing a uh, um uh, a detective by the name of uh, antonio graziani he's this uh, newly transplanted detective in italy i guess and so that's pretty much the audience cipher i think to where yeah. okay this is this is the, that's the main character who's kind of uncovering the mystery behind this when oddly enough the guy who's again whose family was kidnapped and murdered who's gunning for revenge we're going to put him in the sidelines on the sidelines right we're going to put him in the background and follow around this character that we don't care about in the least yeah exactly i mean and you know you don't really establish much of a relationship between Dolph and the the cop until way too sort of late on. So there's a lot, you know, there's so much that we get introduced to this guy, the, the, the cop um, played by Marco. So there's all this stuff that feels, you know, very superfluous. Like it's just filling time rather than taking the plot from A to B. Um, and again, you know, it's just another case of, it's an idea that's been too thinly thought out. And then there's sort of spreading it too thin um, and they're just padding things out, really. So his character feels awkward, and it feels like an awkward um, sense of him carrying the weight that Dolph is not going to be able to carry because obviously maybe he's there for you know half the shoot or a third of the shoot. But I think the you know they needed a more interesting way to have Dolph interact with this other character, have Dolph be more kind of proactive in the film. Because uh, he, yeah, he's just too passive, and he doesn't really do much tracking. Yeah, I, I, I think we've, I think we've come back to that point multiple times and said it is for a <laughs> film called The Tracker. There's not enough killing. There's not enough tracking. There's not. I mean, it's just, and I mean, and the the other thing I will say about this film is, I mean, man, there is some absolutely terrible uh, dialogue. Okay, that is thrown in this film um, through exposition. So basically, if we go back a bit, um, so Marco Mozzoli's character, he, he and his uh, his pregnant wife, okay, they have just moved to Italy for a two year stint, and we find this out through a car conversation b- between, excuse me, between Marco or excuse me, the actor um, between Marco's uh, character and his wife. Okay, as they're moving, and so we get just some awful uh, uh, dialogue that is really unnatural sounding and almost excruciating because like I said, she's pregnant with twins and we find that out again through some dialogue. It doesn't sound natural. I mean, I I think even one of the lines he says is, uh, Hey, Hey honey, how do you feel about uh, moving to Italy for two years with a, uh, with a detective? I mean, he literally says that and it's like, what? Yeah. (laughs) It's a, it's a weird one because, I mean, I don't know the, the creative reasoning behind that, but, you know, I know that sometimes I've had from distributors that they'll have, they'll read for a script or something and then they'll request things to be spelled out for the audience because they don't have enough trust in the, the audience might pick something up. So rather than just show a woman maybe sat there holding a what's clearly a pregnant tummy, um, they have to have her sort of, you know, stay out loud. I'm pregnant, you know. Good to know. I couldn't tell yeah. with the with the prosthetic tummy. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, 
it's like with uh, most screenwriting guys, they say that you should show and not tell, but sometimes, you know, distributors or whoever it might be might decide, well, is this clear enough? Are they going to know? Um, because they're almost willing their audience to spend half the movie or even three quarters of the movie looking at their phone rather than concentrating. So yeah, maybe they feel the need to sort of add lines of dialogue in that are almost like commentary really. Yeah. Well, and the rest of the film is, I mean, kind of like what we said with hard night falling, the rest of the film is just a ton of pointless shots of people walking to cars, getting into cars, making phone calls, answering phone calls. I mean, literally all of those scenes take up, uh, take a valuable screen time of this film. And again, like I said earlier, again, considering that it's Dolph's character who's at the center of this entire thing. I mean, if you look at the cover, for God's sakes, the cover of this film is Dolph, okay, looking through the scope of a sniper rifle, okay? Yeah. Um, there is never it, – it, it, what's interesting is for a guy whose uh, wife and kid were kidnapped and killed, there's never really any urgency on his behalf. He gets one scene, one scene at the beginning where he emotes and shows sadness at his wife and daughter's passing – but that's really it. And considering that this should be a revenge story, like I said earlier, which is something that Dolph has done before and is great at, his character and his story, like I said, are, are really just an afterthought. And it seems like everybody here is just going through the motions. Um, I will say with, in the end, I think that's the big point I'm going to come back to with the tracker, is I feel like there was some potential here Okay, with the script, okay, again, they could have just done another standard revenge story. They had a really cool locale, okay, and I'm going to give Serafini some credit. The, the film actually does, um, despite being um, pretty pretty drab and, and not having the, the, the best uh, color palette to it, it does resemble and look like an actual movie. But in the end, they had these opportunities that, um, at the end, were kind of squandered. Yeah, no, I'm in agreement. I think it just it lacked any kind of intrigue. And I think with a film like this, particularly if you're going for a bit more of a thriller than rather than just normal action, it needed a little bit more intrigue. I think even something like Cover Up, going back to that, um, you know, it's not perfect, but I've always found it a little bit underrated in Dolph's CV. And, you know, there is there are moments of intrigue in that, you know, as he uncovers things and... I think this really kind of lacked any of that. And then, you know, there's no real kind of action payoffs either. I think it's a shame really because you're, it's almost foolproof in terms of they shoot a lot of this during the day. So you're in these great Italian looking locations. So it's always going to look at kind of at least on a basic level, pretty decent. Um, but yeah, I think like you say, it was maybe a little bit too drab in terms of the, the grading and maybe a little bit rushed in terms of the framing. I, th I think just it's one of those where if you'd have taken someone like Jesse Johnson, William Kaufman, or even Dolph himself, they, they could have got a lot more out of this kind of concept. Yeah, no, that's a great way of putting it. And I, I think I've echoed that on the show numerous times is act, uh, uh, excuse me, directors like Jesse Johnson, Isaac Florentine, William Kaufman, and even Dolph himself. I mean, th these are guys who really know how to make the most of not just the budget, but of shooting time. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and, and that's very evident with all the films that they've done. Um, okay. So 
obviously, I don't think these films really get high recommends. But what I'd like you to do, Tom, if you could, please, and you've kind of, in a roundabout way, already stated it. But if you had to rank these these three films, okay, how would you rank them? Okay, with one being the best or at least the most watchable, all the way down to uh, to the worst. Um, I know earlier we kind of joked saying don't bother with all three of them, but um, in the end. <laughs> In the end, how would you rank this uh, this this triumvirate? Yeah, so um, at number three, I would be saying Hard Night Falling, quite a clear oh, three. That was my number one. Sorry, no, I'm just joking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, on, I'm a little bit of a toss-up, really, between Accelerate. I think there's probably slightly more highlights in Acceleration than the Tracker. I think the tracker in terms of there was probably a bit more potential. I'm going to put uh, acceleration at number one. Okay. Yeah. So you and I, I mean, man, that's interesting because you and I are, are have the exact same opinions, which, which is really kind of cool. I'm, I'm exactly with you. I would put hard night fallen at the bottom of the barrel. Again, that one was a, a tax write off that was squeezed out out of a one week shoot. Okay. And so again, I'm, not going to put any more thought into that um, as needed because, again, I don't think the producers really, <laughs> really did either. So, yeah, that one for me is at the very bottom. And, and I, I'm, I'm right there with you as well in, in terms of uh, acceleration and the tracker being a toss-up. I will say that the tracker um, resembles more of an actual movie. Acceleration just has this very... Um, cheap and shabby uh digital look to it i mean you can tell that um that what's on display are a lot of like makeshift sets you know what i mean like a lot of the offices in the room you can tell i mean and so i don't think that really works to its uh to to its advantage however there are a few fight scenes in acceleration and also the use of neon is something that kind of you know holds your attention a little bit so i will put acceleration above tracker um for those aspects but in the end i think tracker like i said in the tra- tracker is going for that 70s european kind of uh, uh look and feel you know what i mean and so on that end i will say it um resembles more of a completed movie but um but yeah for me number one is acceleration number two is the tracker and then number three is hard night falling having said all of that tom I, I'm, I don't think actually I know I'm not going to be going back to these and revisiting them anytime soon. Um, I do really appreciate though, man, you really took a bullet for me on this one. So, <laughs> so thank you. I took three bullets. I think yeah, three bullets. I know. I know. I can only imagine how, how, when, when I was uh, inquiring saying, Hey, would you be willing? You were thinking, wow. Okay. Um, I don't get skin trade. I don't get, don't kill it. I don't get Creed uh, too, but Wow, I'm getting three. Okay, Sean. Damn, I'm sorry. <laughs> it, it's a difficult period in his career. I, um, you know, I'll give you that. So it yeah. wouldn't surprise me if you have to do a few more kind of collections. Oh yes, the, 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 this is this is the second of our, or no, excuse me, this is the third combo episode, and um, I'm gonna have a, I'm gonna have a few more. But um, in any case, before I let you go, um, the, the 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 show is yours at this point. I know. Man, you've, I mean, speaking of, uh, speaking of productions getting turned around fairly quickly, I mean, man, you, the, the past few years have been, uh, 
pretty prolific for you. It seems like, as I remember, what's interesting is I remember when we had you on, and we should probably say you've also contributed a number of um, um, audio essays for the show for uh, Diamond Dogs, and then you did Don't Kill It as well. Um, but I know when we had you on for The Minion, your screenwriting career was kind of, is it fair to say, it was kind of lifting off, and you were getting a few projects since then, okay, since uh, we, we had that conversation, how many how many total movies have been made based on your on your scripts? Oh, I would say so if the minion episode was around about 2018 2019 that was probably around about the start of my my kind of feature career I guess. Yeah. Um it's probably coming up to I think I've had about 20 25 it's been ridiculous. Oh my God. Since the first one, it just ended up, it just snowballed nonstop. Um, In four years. Four years. Yeah. Man. I mean, I'm curious, what is, uh, sorry, sorry, but what is the quickest turnaround you've ever done a script? Because my understanding a lot of times is producers will go to established screenwriters and say, okay, I have a, a, a submarine set. I need you to throw together a, script over the course of a weekend that um has a sea monster and a submarine i mean that's a lame example but is that <laughs> kind of kind of uh, the, the approach yeah. that a lot of producers have come to you with well speaking of um monsters sea monsters i I've, I've had a sky monster request so basically there was um uh i got noticed that there was going to be an, an airplane set available and someone needed to have a film written about it and they wanted a creature feature. So I wrote a film called Sky Monster, which was probably in less than two weeks. And then they were filming about three or four weeks after that. Um, that was wow. a couple of years ago now. I think that's due out this this, this autumn sometime. Um, yeah, it can be very quick. So... I might get notice at the beginning of a month and they might be shooting at the end of the month. Um, I'm just looking at a project now, which is another one that's going to be set on an airplane. Um, you know, a lot of these things are very minimal in terms of locations. So yeah, I might be doing a sort of plane hijack film, uh, that's looking to shoot next month. Other things can take a lot longer. So there's a, you know, a longer development time, they can kind of even get stuck in development. I've had quite a few scripts that I've been working on that have just kind of gone as far as sort of funding and then collapsed at that point, which is just one of the frustrating realities of the business. Um, I've had a few close calls on a couple of Dolph films as well. So, you know, you could be on here slaughtering one of my films yeah. at some point. Um Oh, sorry. Well, and we should probably also say that um, you've written a film for Daniel Zarilli, who directed uh, who directed Acceleration, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that that was a bit of an odd one because I'd signed on to that film um, before he was on board, and then a week or so later, he contacted me because this was just after I'd written a review for Acceleration. And, you know, as I say, I wrote quite a constructive review. It wasn't, like, entirely positive, but I could, you know, I could comment on the, the positive aspects of the film because there were, as we discussed, there were, you know, aspects that I did enjoy. 
So he quite appreciated that and just sort of started chatting with me. A week after that, he then signs on to the same film that I'm on. So that was just a bit of an odd sort of turnaround, really. Yeah, that was Renegade. So that came out at the end of last year uh, with Danny Trejo, Lee Majors, Michael Pere. Um That was really the sort of the big jump for me where I'd been doing like really low budget indie indie film shot in um, the UK. Um, not really with any kind of big names, but then Renegades was like the first one with quite a few names in it. Um, yeah, so later this year, I've also got uh, Cinderella's Revenge coming out. That's the first of three films I've been doing with uh, Mark Lester. Um, uh, you know, of Showdown and Little Tokyo fame. I don't know if you, have you interviewed Mark yet? No, I have not been able to. So maybe by the time we um, uh, uh, stop recording, um, you might be willing to uh, lend his contact information. I don't know, Tom. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can. I can. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'll see, I'm sure he'd love to talk about that film. Um, yeah, so I'm hoping Cinderella's Revenge will come out this year. That's got Natasha Henstridge in it. Um, oh, cool which as a fan of hers in the nineties was quite uh, um, pleasing for me. Um, and yeah, right now I've got something filming. So I've, you know, the beginning of the year I've been so busy. I kind of said to myself that I want to kind of slow down and focus a bit more on producing my own projects as well. So I've got a film called the baby in the basket, which is a kind of old school Gothic horror that shooting basically as we speak, um, they had their first day of photography yesterday. Um, so, yeah, well, I'm hoping that goes well. Um, got my fingers and toes and everything crossed that there's no filmmaking disasters. Um, and, yeah, we'll be hoping to see that one out late next year or early 2025. Yeah, I'm just wondering, you know, being a screenwriter, I feel like, you know, um, a screenwriter is, in, in some respects, kind of a thankless job, but... Um, when you when you write these films, how often? I mean, are you ever invited to set, or is it pretty much your you write the you write the particular film, um, send it off to the powers that be, and then collect the check, and then you just kind of sit back and uh, wait to see how it uh, how it turns out? Or I mean, like with for example, with this Natasha Henstridge project, are you going to be able to hang out on set? Is that how it works, or no? Um. I, I mean, I, I probably could have a set visit if I want. I think I've, I've missed that opportunity, sadly, which is a shame. Um, it's just it depends on time, really, because usually by the time someone is shooting one of my films, I'm in the midst of writing the next thing or, you know, another thing after that. Um, yeah, but normally I hand a script off and then that's kind of it. And then I wait however long it is and see the final product and hope that they've kind of, not butchered it yeah um, you know but sometimes the you know there could be significant changes or sometimes there's minimal changes yeah it, it's um it's been interesting i think in terms of this like the commissions um the jobs i'm given i get kind of given a basic outline and then i kind of work from that sometimes it's like a full treatment so yeah, I've enjoyed kind of doing other people's ideas, but I think 
I'm starting to look into kind of producing a bit more and doing the kind of things that I want to do as well. Um, but it's a lot more stress. I can tell you that in terms of being, I don't envy, you know, Georgia or any, anyone like that that's producing themselves because, you know, some of the realities, it's just, it slaps you in the face a bit. So I do have an appreciation that sometimes these things are difficult to kind of get out the best way you can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is Tom. Thank you again so, so much. I mean, it's, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. I really, I really do appreciate um, all of that. And I will of course be on the lookout for all of these particular films. Congratulations, by the way. I mean, man, to, uh, to be, you know, 25 films over the course (laughs) of four years is, is pretty amazing. But, uh, but yeah, again, I, I really do appreciate this, Tom. This was uh, a ton of fun. And, um, I don't know the, uh, like I said, we're, we're kind of getting near the end, but, um, you know, I don't know, maybe if you might be willing to, uh, send in your thoughts on other gems such as forgotten or altitude, or I'm trying to think what is left dead trigger. Um, we still have coming up. I mean, so, <laughs> you know, and then, and then we also have a few that are still awaiting release, um, for example, such as uh, a wanted man, I know is in post production. Yeah. Um, there's another one, oddly enough, that he uh, uh, once again starred with Isaac Florentine called Hellfire. So, um, in any case, yeah, there's still quite a few. But um, you're always welcome back. I had a ton of fun. Thanks again. Yeah, I'd love to come back. Yeah, anytime. All right. To everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews, and we'll see you all next time on I Must Break, this podcast. 